Hi, I'm Trini. And I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of a book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and appreciate the identity of each nation. And through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello. I was about to say good evening. Probably when this is released, it's whatever time you're listening to it. <laughs> but it is late. Usually yeah. when we'll be asleep by now. But yeah, we are here committed to dedicated to sharing the African history, dedicated yeah. to the course. Yeah. And also because we don't talk enough, <laughs> we've created this <laughs> to talk even more. But this week has honestly been not to talk too much about our politics. Look. Dramatic. <laughs> the drums. To say the least. The Westminster drums. What could we say? The drums. We are following it like though it was a reality TV show. I'm not going to lie. All I can say is UK is in its new era of austerity. We are, you know, going straight <laughs> Wait, is that, is that a new... I'm, <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't wow. seen people talk or mention this. But yeah, buckle up. It's going to be a wild ride because it's going to be a, an interesting two years or so. To be honest, it shouldn't surprise me. At the end of the day, she did hit the ground on her first day. Yeah, but does it really count if you do it so terribly that you actually destroy <laughs> people's like financial situation? In 44 days. What got me is that I was on LinkedIn, as you do, as a corporate hun. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she popped up as like a profile. Not for, that you might know her, but she popped up and it was like, former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. I'm like, hun, you were in it for like 44 days. You can't be you claiming can't, that on you your CV. I'm sorry. You know, people are like, oh, ex-Uber. And it's like, you were there for a month. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. That is so true. That's like ex Microsoft. Yeah, and it's like Okay, one week does not count as you being an insight week is not not You had enough time to send one Outlook email and then got away. (laughs) It is honestly embarrassing. Yeah, no, it really is. It really is. But to be honest, let's not even say the only way is up because we've discovered that I can get worse it can look we're here bringing history because we're still here that's yeah that's all that matters right now where are we going so our african pride this week is going to cindy saru chirongo a kenyan diver who saves corals on the coastline she's passionate about conserving Mm -hmm. marine ecosystems and spreading awareness around the need for conservation and around 200 coral reef species are found in kenya with Shimoni and Kisiste, located in the south, having the highest coral diversity. Chirongo says that when she first started learning to be a diver, she initially doubted herself as the field is male-dominated. She also, um, at the height of five foot one, was concerned about being physically up to the challenge as well. But she did realise through training and experience that she had the willingness and skill to do the job. So Cindy encourages women in Kenya who express an interest in diving. So things we love to see, a black woman, African woman, not only swimming, but diving. And not only diving, diving 
but conserving marine ecosystems. So, I feel like that's where I'd like to go to on like a personal, you know, I'm starting off with the learn to swim to How, save my life. Yeah, is that? But <laughs> it's, still, it's still going on. Yeah. It's been, you know. We've made progress. Um, <laughs> I'm 28 years in. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but um i feel like i'm getting close you know i'm yeah. getting close um but yeah i'd love to learn how to dive and no, do all of that stuff honestly incredible work i didn't know that kenya had all these sort of marine ecosystems as well i mean i just think of the mm. great barrier reef around australia and i didn't know that we actually have this level of biodiversity just off the african coast so that's quite a cool fact as well Amazing work, Cindy. Yes, shout out, Cindy. Love to see it. So this week, we are going to Benin, which used to be known as Dahomey, until the then president, Matthew Kereku, announced the name change in 1975. Benin was the name of a West African kingdom on the Gulf of Guinea that reached its peak in the 17th century. So in today's episode, we're going back to the 18th and 19th centuries, so pre-colonial. And you might have already seen the film The Woman King, which was amazing. I mean, we absolutely loved it. Um, I love that film. And I, I love just it. love Viola Davis. This isn't an ad or anything. We part, are not sponsored. Just, just her, Yeah, we are not sponsored. But her book, Finding Me, incredible. Absolutely loved reading her story. Um, yeah, she's, yeah, amazing, amazing. But yeah, let's no, carry on. It's amazing. And yeah, no, it's a pure coincidence that we planned this episode well before we knew about the release date of The Woman King. And that film will actually help to give you a little bit of context, I'd say, and representation mm. and just seeing what the kingdom, a depiction of what the kingdom would have been like at the time. The Agoji were a group of women from the Fon people in Dahomey and were around between the 1700s to 1904. It's thought that this group emerged as Dahomey's male population was heavily depleted because of war against other ethnic states within the region. And the powerful Yoruba Oyo Empire would collect enslaved men from Dahomey each year. At the time, there weren't many accounts of all female regiments in the army and Europeans, in their amazement, named the women the Amazons as they likened the women to mythical Greek figures. We decided to name this episode after the original name, the Agoji, of these incredible group of women, rather than the name given to them by the European explorers slash exploiters. In 1793, a British administrator, or coloniser, depends on how you see things, in the region wrote, Whatever might have been the prowess of the Amazons among the ancients, this is a novelty in modern history. A Frenchman said Dahomey was assuredly the only country in the world that offers a singular spectacle of an organisation of women as soldiers, captains, generals and ministers. Yeah, this is honestly bringing me back to the film so much of it. So Take me back. Yeah, no, yeah take, me, <laughs> take me back, take me back. So how did this all begin? Historians believe the origin of the Ogoji came about through Queen Hangbi who ruled alongside her twin, King Akaba, in the early 1700s. And she had an entourage of female bodyguards. The OG woman king there. Yes, yeah, really was. <laughs> Fon people believe twins have a special guardian spirit and have the ability to die and come back at will. And the two reigned jointly. In 1708, Akaba died of smallpox. And because Queen Hangbi bore resemblance to her twin, she ended up replacing him in the field during a war. 
the oral tradition of the Fon people, who founded the Dahomey Kingdom, says Dako, considered the founder of the Dahomey dynasty, began conquering neighbouring areas in his quest for territorial expansion. A band of women who hunted elephants for King Wagbaja, who was on the throne from 1645 to 1685, supplied the kingdom with ivory and meat for royal feasts. These women were known as Beto. Seeing as these women could kill elephants, they were seen as capable of killing enemies. I don't know if anyone saw what was going on on Twitter a while back, but <laughs> killing an elephant is no mean feat because there was a story of the woman who was trampled by an elephant and then the elephant then went to her funeral and trampled on her corpse. It's a bit morbid, but I don't know if you... <laughs> this, is why, this is why I'm not on Twitter. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> If, if this is true, wh- yeah. what? Yeah, so, yeah, look, if you could kill an elephant, I think you're pretty capable. You're a pretty capable person. Is all and I'm then for that say. elephant to then yeah. come to your funeral. No, elephants are actually scary. I'm sorry. I thought they were just like elbow, wow. but they're really not. The first definite use of women as soldiers by the Dahomean kingdom was recorded in 1729. King Agaja, Akaba's brother, who came to the throne in 1718, conquered wider a kingdom on the coast of West Africa. The Dahomey army faced challenges with heavy losses, fighting their nemesis, the Oyo Empire. Whilst this was going on, the wider region needed to be recaptured as it was left unguarded because of a lack of soldiers. King Agaja then ordered women to be armed like soldiers. Dahomey was seen as dedicated to warring and raiding for enslaved people. Some have considered it to be totalitarian as the monarchy controlled most aspects of life. According to a British naval officer who visited Dahomey in 1862, war was made one of the necessities of the state. A constant drain upon the male population is required and it naturally follows that the supply is never equal to the demand. Hence, the remarkable circumstance of nearly 5,000 women being found in the Dahomean army. History being made. And 5,000, like that number, like that's such a significant yeah. number. And I think sometimes there's an assumption as well around that time period kind of being a time when, you know, from a mm. tradition and sort of like what is expected, traditional norms and, and stuff around men and women, what that would look like. But actually you can see from this perspective how they were really adopting this idea of, you know, equality, and that women could also be part of the army and participate in it. Yeah, definitely. And the army was busy. So yeah, the king waged war annually in Dahomey, and these yearly campaigns persisted for 200 years. And to be honest, I'd be tired, I'd be exhausted, but they kept going. The annual military campaign took place between November and April, the dry season. And King Gezo, who ruled from 1818, particularly loved a fight and placed more importance on the army by allocating a larger budget. He praised his multiple elephant-hunting wives, saying, a nice manhunt would suit them even better. Some of the women in the army were volunteers, whilst others were conscripted if their husbands or fathers complained to the king about their behaviour. So yeah, women were on an equal footing when it came to the war and fighting, but it is kind of low-key patriarchal to just hand off your daughter to the king. Yeah. 
By the mid-1800s, there were thousands of female troops capable of outmuscling rival kingdoms. The Agoji began their training as girls by swinging blades, loading muskets, and climbing through thorny barricades. They drank imported spirits, belted out war songs, and blood-curdling cries as they fought. And some of the cries included, obviously we've got the translated versions, With these guns in our hands and powder in our cartouche boxes, what has the king to fear? When we go to war, let the king dance while we bring him prisoners and heads. Another chant highlighted their rivalry with the Yoruba people. We like not to hear that Abeokuta lives, but soon we shall see it fall. They do come across as like, yeah, super fearless. And I think there's this sense that these women were very much immune to fear. They were never riding horses or other animals and barely used shields. They used muskets, clubs and machetes to fight. Battle dress consisted of a rust-coloured tunic cinched at the waist yes. and by a cartridge belt and shorts around knee length and narrow white headbands tied at the back. Some of the women wore gemstone bracelets and anklets and according to an English observer, women had three stripes of whitewash around each leg, honoured with marks of distinction. From an early age, the girls who were to become a goji were taught how to fight, handle weapons, and how to withstand the high intensity of battle. Early in the morning, the women would wear combat clothing and run long distances. Officers would select the fastest women as musketeers and the slower ones as archers. Training sessions often involved being sent into the forest for around a week, almost without provisions. Here, the women would learn how to support hunger, thirst, wounds, and the presence of wild animals. Look, these girls did it first before Bell Grylls. That's all I'm going to say. They really did. They really did. To be out in the forest for a week without any, like, I can't, I can barely manage <laughs> a couple of hours <laughs> without anything. Like, yeah, incredible. The women were described as remarkably fine, standing five feet eight, nine and ten, none over the age of 35. That's actually quite tall for that time. <laughs> so they're taller than me. And I'm living in night right now. So. Well, I was going to say, I am five now. You are, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I understand the struggles. <laughs> so what did the Agoji do in rare times of peace? The king supplied them with food, uniforms and weapons. Some of the women did pottery and others were mat weavers. Many women rose to positions of importance within the Agoji, elevated to a wealthy status. Europe did start laying claims to land during the second half of the 19th century. As we know, the Berlin Conference had taken place around then. By February 1890, King Bahazin fought French forces in the First Franco-Dahomean War. The Agoji participated in a major battle Akuntonu, charging French lines and engaging in hand-to-hand combat. However, the French defeated them with several hundred Dahomey troops gunned down. After another defeat, Dahomey ended up signing a treaty with France, allowing the colonisers control over Porto Novo and Cotonou. King Behazin then spent around two years fortifying this army, with weapons equal or better matched with the French. The king said, The first time, I was ignorant of how to make war. But now I know, if you want war, I am ready. 
I wouldn't stop even if it lasted a hundred years. It does kind of dispel that whole myth that we get around pre-colonial African states being just rolled over by colonization because we can see the determination here. Like this man wasn't going to stop. Like that was his intention. Yeah. And he spent the time fortifying his army as well with the weapons that he believed would be adequate to, to ward off the French. He was definitely playing the long game, willing to wait, Mm. even if it lasted 100 years. The Second War period saw special Agoji units assigned to target French officers, fighting over seven weeks to repel the invaders. The French prevailed and ended the independent Dahomey Kingdom. The Agoji remained fearless until the end. As in one of the final battles against the French, it's said that only 17 out of 434 Agoji came back alive. And according to King Bahazin's brother, Sagbaju Gele, who lived until the 1970s, this battle brought a moment of clarity for Dahomey, who realised their kingdom was heading for its demise. Of the 1,200 Agoji fighting at the beginning of the war, just 50 or 60 were fit enough to fight by the end. Wow. And it's thought that between two to 4,000 Dahomeyan soldiers, both men and women, died during the Seven Week War. A lot of bloodshed just to fulfil what France had decided they were going to do in the Berlin Conference. Mm. France eventually seized the Dahomey Kingdom's capital, Abomey, on November 17th, 1892, where they went on to loot. 26 items were returned after two years of negotiations and now sit in Benin, their homeland. The exhibits finally returning home has paved the way for similar reparations from Europe to the continent. The French colonisers' first move was to disband the Agoji. According to oral tradition, some of the women secretly remained in Abomey and assassinated French officers in secret. Others ended up touring Europe and the US, performing dances and battlefield reenactments at living exhibitions that showcased racist stereotypes to white people. Many displayed difficulties adjusting to life after being a warrior, likely PTSD, and often started feist and arguments that scare their neighbours and relatives. It's actually so sad that those that ended up in Europe and the US ended up at these living exhibitions, which were essentially zoos. Their battle cries, their rituals, their battle dress is now just being used to just for people to gawk at. Yeah, and also just thinking like what they must have gone through as well obviously they have done this training and as we said earlier a lot of these were kind of young girls trained up to become uh warriors Mm. and then for that to kind of be taken away and removed i can't imagine kind of there must be a feeling and a sense of loss in the sense of lack of direction essentially because you're now thrown into this completely foreign sort of experience now and having to kind of pave your way through it Mm. it was that or just like destitution i guess i mean both situations would have been terrible but it's just yeah just really sad to see that Mm. that was how the culture was then disregarded it was then just used as a tool for people to be like oh it's just the africans doing their tribal stuff again you know like it was just just really sad to see whereas it it could have actually been highlighted the existence and dominance of Dahomey's women warriors is thought to have upset the French's understanding of gender roles and what women were supposed to do in what they said was a civilised society. Europeans saw the women's flaunting of ferocity, physicality and fearlessness as contrary to what they felt society should be 
and the French saw the agogi as more fuel for their so-called civilizing mission imposing European ideals on African countries. This is just... Yeah, I had a feeling that they would be uncomfortable. And we've seen other examples of this whereby, actually, Mm -hmm. a lot of these African kingdoms were much more, were kind of what we consider today, you know, progressive, back, way back when. And Mm. it's only now from kind of from a, in society, we're getting, you know, really, we're pushing for gender equality and that sort of thing. But that, back then, that was seen as, you know, uncivilized. Mm. And it's just so frustrating that it's not flagged to say, do you know what? This was already being done. Do you know that, that just that the lack of acknowledgement really... Now they're having to walk it yeah, back. Yeah, and that really frustrates me because even though we're walking yeah. it back, there is still not that sense of recognition in terms of why don't more people know about the story of these women and actually what they represented at the time and what they did and actually how today it would be considered as revolutionary and like, but actually it was part of day-to-day life within within the yeah. kingdom we started it first exactly just, just... exactly leonard wantricon is an economist at prince university and he's of beninese descent he's currently leading research looking to identify the agoji descendants in an interview with the washington post he explained how french colonization was detrimental to women's rights as the colonizers prevented women from political leadership and educational opportunities In his words, the French made sure this history wasn't known. They said we were backwards, that they needed to civilise us, but they destroyed opportunities for women that existed nowhere else in the world. Yeah, what we're saying. So that's exactly, yeah. Could fully Mm. agree with that, right? The last known surviving Agoji, Nawi, died in 1979, but traditions continue being shared amongst descendants. It's important that these stories continue being told and that we embrace a legacy of an incredible group of courageous African women that European history has tried, but failed this mm. time, to erase. We see representation today in The Woman King and the Agoji were the inspiration for the Dora Milaje, the all-female special forces unit in the Marvel film Black Panther. And no, we're not sponsored by them either. Yeah, also, Wakanda forever, we're waiting. We are waiting at the door, but it's good to see that the Agoji was used as an inspiration for this group of characters. Mm. It's really, really encouraging to see, and we just hope that more more African women are just shown from a pre-colonial perspective. Yeah, definitely. And I also think, like, watching, obviously hearing about these women, but also kind of through watching the film as well, there's just an immense sense for me just of pride as an African woman just seeing that level of representation and for me Mm. like especially thinking just growing up and not really knowing okay who are like incredible African women that I can kind of say yeah I aspire to look at these yeah incredible warriors who were just there in history and doing the damn thing but have been erased because it didn't serve, from a French perspective, their narrative and what they needed to achieve. And it's only now that there is, we're slowly seeing kind of greater, you know, representation. But I do think, and I do hope that we do see a lot more of it coming through on television and just, yeah, in the media in general, because it is so important to share. And hopefully through things like kind of film and cinemas, it will, yeah, it can definitely make a difference. 100%. 
there are also other women that we've covered as well, like um, Queen mm-hmm. Zinga, for example, um, of modern day Angola now. Shout out Africa women, honestly. We will do our utmost to find more pieces of pre-colonial uh, history in particular, um, as that's a topic that is especially close to us. Definitely. So thank you for listening, everyone. We are on Twitter at It's a Continent, on Instagram at It's a Continent Pod. Uh, we also have a website, It's a Continent.com, and we are also on Buy Me a Coffee, if that's what you fancy doing. Thank you for listening, guys, and we'll see you in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time. Catch Bye. you later. Bye.